What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you so much for tuning in to episode one of the Main Idea Podcast. I'm your host, Abe Maynard, and I just wanted to mention that if you prefer long-form video, all these episodes are going to air on YouTube. The audio version will obviously be available on Spotify Podcasts and Apple Podcasts, but if you enjoy watching along, you want to see me interact with guests, that will be available on youtube.com slash Abe Maynard. Additionally, any of you that leave a review, subscribe, or rate this podcast, I honestly thank you so much. That will be the thing that helps this podcast grow. It's going to help create leverage to have more and more guests on the show. And that is also where I'm going to look for feedback, things to change, things to keep the same, and suggestions from you, the listener. Because ultimately, this podcast will be nothing without you. So thank you for that in advance. I think... What I'd like to do is just outline here that this episode will be by far the episode where you hear me talk the most because I'm the only one on it. One of my main goals with this podcast is to be a listener. I think that the podcasts out there that I find the most interesting, the ones that I turn back to over and over again, are podcasts where the host listens to their guests because ultimately that's what you're on there to hear. Yes, the host does carry the conversation along, and I do appreciate when hosts ask interesting questions or dig deep in certain areas, but at the end of the day, it's annoying to get on a podcast and just hear the host talk the whole time over their guests. So this episode will be the one episode where I go on and on, tell my story, let you guys understand a little bit more about who I am, my upbringing, what led me to this place of wanting to do a podcast, and all the things along the way. So as long as we have that out in the open up front, that this will not be a reoccurring theme on the podcast, I feel confident going forward. So I guess we'll start at, uh, at my childhood, kind of where things began. Um, I'll talk a lot about what led me into the world of training, what's shaped my philosophy, not only as a trainer, but as an athlete and just a uh, human in general, looking to optimize my health and the health of those around me. I'll briefly touch on my experience working for Equinox, why I left Equinox, um, as well as some mishaps in my college experience and how that uh, led me to work at Enterprise Rent-A-Car of all places, my uh, pride and joy. Um, at the end, I'll touch a little bit on current knee injury that some of you are aware of happened the other day, where I'm at with that, and a little bit of the irony around that injury, as well as I think some of the lessons behind it happening. So without further ado, I was born in Steamboat Springs. Wow. How about that? Right off the bat, I'm just going to lie to everybody. I was not born in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. I was born in Boston, but <laughs> I grew up in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. We moved to Steamboat when I was about nine years old, and I was heavily involved in winter sports where I competed as a mogul skier for going on about 12 years. That was my first exposure to training for a sport. And I think at that time, nothing impacted me more as a kid than my experience as a skier. Having that shape, everything from how I interacted socially with other kids in school, my prioritization of academics, because I knew that that was my key to be able to keep skiing. So it was something that I always put my head down and worked hard for because I didn't want my parents to take skiing, the thing that I love so much away from me. Uh, it also shaped, you know, what I thought about human performance, the importance of training and the off season for a sport. 
And it sparked my fascination with the body and kind of what we're capable of as people, if we find consistency and put our head down on things. Um, odd thing about being an athlete when I was a kid is that I had, I guess I would call it a, you can call it a birth defect, but I feel like that <laughs> always feels like a little bit of a stretch when I say it. I had something called pectus excavatum, which is an overgrowth of cartilage on your sternum. You can think of someone who has like a caved in chest or somebody else who has a, an, an excessive protrusion. I had something that was right in the middle. So when your ribs come off of your spine as a child, they stop growing. And then at the end of your ribs spirals cartilage to connect to your sternum in people that have that protrusion or that depression it means that there's excessive growth either symmetrically on both sides that produces a protrusion outwards or depression downwards. But in my case, I had an asymmetrical growth of cartilage. So on the left side of my sternum, the cartilage grew at an accelerated rate and it buckled my sternum sideways. At the time, it was really hard to tell, you know, what this was. It was just kind of a weird thing. Like my shirt stuck out and other kids didn't that type of thing, or I'd be in class and I have a teacher say, you know, Abe, what's in your shirt? And I would feel like an idiot because there was nothing other than the asymmetry of my skeletal system. <laughs> and uh, we started to look around and talk to different doctors and they seemed to all want to just classify it as scoliosis, but we knew that that was not the case. And uh, my dad dug some, some other doctors out of the woodwork and we found at UCLA Medical Center this guy by the name of Dr. Funkelsrud who pioneered the surgery where they actually go in and they cut the cartilage off of the sternum to help the sternum sit back in against the ribs and the cartilage. And then they stitch you back together. It's a long procedure. And we decided to actually go through with this because at the moment that growth, one, it was straight up just an insecurity. I was a kid in high school. I had this big ass thing sticking out of my chest. I felt like an idiot. That was rough in and of itself. Uh, I'm sure I wish I was had more mental fortitude at that point to deal with it, but I didn't. Uh, and then the second thing was that it was creating pain. And they will not do that surgery prior to 18 years old because it, it's, it's classified as cosmetic, right? Because it's not actually limiting your, your performance in any place. But because it was painful, they were willing to do the surgery early. So when I was 16, my mom and I flew out to Los Angeles, California. And I don't know what about that experience, maybe fall in love with California, but we went through the, the consultation process, found out there was going to be a pretty high success rate. And I went into UCLA medical center. I spent eight hours in surgery. I was in the hospital for three days. I lost 15 pounds. I was pissing out of a tube at a bladder catheter. And I had this massive Hawaiian dude that would come in and pick me up out of the bed in the middle of the night and like walk me around just so that I would actually keep moving. It was a, a pretty trippy experience. Uh, the guy who I was sharing a room with was really sick terminally with cancer. And so that whole experience going on at the same time that I was in there for something that in my mind seemed so great, but in reality paled in comparison to something 10 feet away was a pretty stark experience as a 16 year old. And when I got out of the hospital, I had, for those of you watching the video, this metal rod, it's about, for those of you listening, eight inches in length. And this is the one I'm holding is the actual metal rod that was stitched to my sternum. 
So it sat on my lower ribs and it crossed my sternum. And then on this side, it was stitched to my other ribs. I had 46 sutures and staples on the outside of my chest. And I had about a six month recovery period where the metal rod was kept inside of my chest and it was there to help everything heal. After which they did a small incision and I lied again, it was not six months. It was six weeks that I kept the metal rod in there. Um, go back and it, they do a simple outpatient procedure, little incision on the side of the ribs, and then they pull the metal rod out of there. So at that point, I'm a 16 year old kid. I have a chest as flat as a wall. And for whatever reason, I just felt way less than like, I felt bad before because I had this protrusion and it was something I was constantly thinking about as a kid in high school. Uh, I felt stupid around girls. I just like, it was a weird experience for me, but I actually felt worse immediately following the surgery. At the time, it, there was some part of it that was cool because I had this insane scar on my chest that everyone wanted to see. But then at the same time, I just felt like kind of like a shell of a human. It just something was not right. I just didn't feel like I could move the way I wanted to. I didn't feel like I looked the way I wanted to. And I don't know what it was about that experience, but it made me want to work out and like build my body and just, and become athletic and like physically, visually, and actually feel that way. Like I wanted to feel capable. And I think that that experience really drove me down the path that I, you know, that I've been on now for like 10 years or so. Um, not only as a trainer, but as a coach, someone who wants to help other people overcome those things that they feel like are in their way. And it was just a, a strong experience for me. And I remember my dad kind of heard this. And so he actually looked in the newspaper and he found a Bowflex in a sense, like pre Craigslist, he found a Bowflex in like essentially the classified ads. And we got that thing and we put it in our downstairs and I would work out on the Bowflex twice a day, every single damn day. I would not miss a day. And the Bowflex came with these little workout tracker uh, like worksheets where you could go and you could put like what resistance you used on this day and then what resistance you used the next day. And I had every single one of those filled out. I would, I was so dedicated to it. And I remember like friends just being like, dude, you're such an idiot. Why are you doing this? Like no one cares. And, and they were right. You know, no one does care. I cared the most out of anyone. No one is, is patting you on the back going, Hey man, you're making really good progress and you're looking a lot better. I think you've overcome the chest thing. It's, you know, it's just not part of it. So that experience, I, I was just so dedicated to it. And then it really, you know, once I recovered and I came back from the surgery uh, and I could move and play soccer again and train in the off season and all these things, I really started to take to strength training. And, uh, I was fortunate enough to be exposed to Olympic athletes from the ski team. And I had a really interesting experience, uh, as an athlete on the team, I was selected with a couple other athletes to be part of a small group of basically looked at us as like, we were well-performing skiers. We were really dedicated on and off of the ski hill, but we also wanted to excel from a strength and conditioning side more so than the other athletes on the team. Like we were really gunning to do it, but in essence, they had to find some way to separate 
these winter programs are huge. Steamboat Springs Winter Sports Club is where I was. And they're big programs. You have massive groups of kids coming after school with ranging interest levels and commitment levels. And so myself and about four other athletes were brought in to get individualized coaching, which ironically is what I then later do in my life. Um, and we were able to work alongside Olympic silver medalist, Travis Mayer, who was like our childhood and hometown hero. Um, and I swear to God, he would have won gold. Absolutely. Hands down. No questions asked, but bobbled his bottom air in the 2002 Olympics in Deer Valley, which I went to and watched with my dad. And it was crazy. And to then be able to work alongside this guy was like life-changing, but I'll be honest as a 17 year old kid getting this private training, I felt a little holier than thou. I felt really cool that I got to participate in this program. And as a result, I took it for granted and I got called out by both my coaches and they basically pulled me from this program. And at the time that that happened, nothing was a bigger blow to just like my, I guess my belief of like who I was is like, did not think that that was part of my character, that I would be that kid that, that thought he was too good for it. And it, it totally made me put myself in check on respecting opportunities that come your way and respecting the people that are involved in those opportunities. So that kind of woke me up and I was forced to do a little bit more training on my own and, re and really focus on that. Long story short, I decided to not pursue um, the Olympics. I was nine spots from making the U.S. ski team my, my senior year in high school, and I decided that I no longer wanted to pursue that just because I didn't see, you know, really long financially stable career in the sport of mogul skiing. And I, I never regret that decision, but it was a very tough one that I made at the time. And I went to college, University of Colorado at Boulder, and I partied my ass off for four years, essentially. And I let, I think I took a little bit of the pressure off of having competed at like a high level all through high school. And I did the opposite. And I don't regret any decisions in college. I had an amazing time and I've met some friends for, you know, the rest of my life there, but I look back on some of the experiences, these two that I'm specifically going to share. And I laugh at how far I was from where I thought I was. So my junior year, and I guess the caveat here is I have always thought of myself as a really hard worker, someone who is punctual. They pay attention, you know, first to show up, last to leave, yada, yada, yada. And so I get a job at a burrito place in high school. It's called, or college, sorry, big city burrito. Because a classmate of mine worked there and he's like, dude, I can get you a job. No problem. It's easy. All you do is make burritos. And I was like, all right, what can be harder than this? And I went in and the very first day, the guy said, your responsibility is to understand the schedule. Know when you need to be here. We have a, a no show, no call, one strike policy. And I said, no problem. I can handle a schedule. And I'd worked in kitchens before growing up. So it was a place that I like to be. And I was stoked. I get, you know, as a broke college student, you get a free burrito every day. That's a significant amount of food. The burritos were good and it was social and it was fun. Like other college students work there. So I started working there and I got pretty sick one day, like flu, like symptoms. I would say, and I called in and I said, Hey, I'm wondering if I'm on the schedule tomorrow. And he goes, one sec comes back. Nope. You're all good. You're not on until Monday. And I said, cool. 
And I literally went to sleep. Like I actually felt like shit and I went to sleep. And I woke up to a message that was said I was fired and I could come get my paycheck because they didn't show up. That destroyed me. And I'm not, I am not shitting you. I actually rode my bike to this damn burrito place in the snow with goggles on. And that's not like your dad trying to be a hard ass telling you how crazy shit was when he was a kid. I actually did that. I didn't have a car. That's how committed I was to this job. And ironically, I get fired for not showing up from a fucking burrito place. It's hilarious. Anyway, so that was the first time that I got fired from a job. And the second time that I got fired from a job was working at a, a tequila restaurant in Boulder. I showed up one day and they said, hey, we got to talk to you outside. And they said, you're one of the best barbacks that we have. And you're, you do excellent, but you're not cutting it on the floor. And by the floor, they meant a busboy, which for those of you who don't know, is by far the easiest job that anyone can ever do anywhere. You literally just clean up tables that people are not sitting at anymore. And I got fired because I wasn't cutting it as a busboy. So within a six month period, I'm fired from a burrito place and I'm fired as a busboy. <laughs> I mean, spirits are low at this point in my life. Uh, and I was scrambling. I mean, I needed a job, you know? And so I found what I thought was a prep cook job and I show up and the guy goes, Hey, you know, I think you're a little overqualified for this, but I'm willing to entertain the position anyway. It's part-time work. It looks like it can work with your schedule. You can come through whenever and check it out. So I was like, great. I love working in kitchens. I'd just been fired from two jobs. It's time to get back on the horse and really make things happen. So I go to Boulder Soup Works which is a soup production company. They make soups to sell them like Whole Foods, stuff like that. And I show up and immediately I'm put in a hairnet with gloves and a lab coat. And at that moment, I was like, I kind of think I am overqualified for this job. But nonetheless, I stuck it out. This soup kitchen was adjacent with a weed grow operation. So the whole place just smelled like pot all the time, no matter what you could be standing in the freezer and just reek like weed. So I would always smell like weed no matter what, when I left. And on top of that, my jobs ranged from literally putting cans like lids on a soup can as it comes down a conveyor belt to operating a forklift and putting boxes of soup in ready to ship containers. I mean, this was like, you know, it's the worst job that you think you could ever have. Like I was actually working in basically like a soup manufacturing facility, just never where I thought I'd be. Right. But when you get fired from two jobs in college and you're partying your ass off all the time, that is kind of where you end up. Um, and I remember going into work one day and I had flown out to California over the winter break to interview at enterprise rent a car. I knew I was moving to LA and I knew I wanted a, like a quote, real job. Um, unfortunately with my epic college transcripts from having a good time for four years, I didn't really line myself up that well with the opportunities. So enterprise came calling and that's where I went and interviewed. And I remember standing in the soup kitchen one day, and I got a call from enterprise and I stepped outside to take it. And they said, Hey, congratulations. We want to offer you a job. And I mean, this was like, you know, at the time, this is fresh out of college, a job salary with benefits which was huge. Like I was stoked on that. And I stepped out, out of the soup kitchen in the lab coat, took the call, got the job. And I was elated. I mean, 
I felt like it was a super comeback story, getting fired from the burrito place, the tequila place, working in the soup kitchen with the weed adjacent grow operation to getting an actual job, a real job where I could earn money and like have benefits. I mean, it felt incredible to me at the moment. How the hell does all this land me as a personal trainer at Equinox? And I will tell you, there was one pivotal experience that made this all happen. And I won't bore you with the experience of working at Enterprise because it doesn't really matter. But Enterprise is a very high stress work environment. It is customer service to a T. And your job is to make sure that the customer is, quote, completely satisfied in any situation. You are to do everything possible to make sure that, that happens. Because the only way to get promoted within the company is to be at a branch where you operate at a, you know, above like an 85% completely satisfied rating. So when I was an assistant manager in Santa Monica, I was working at this location on 17th in Santa Monica. It's still there. Gives me nightmares every time I drive by it. And I was working one day, we were down a couple of people. I was the assistant manager, meaning that I was running the whole operation as the, the manager was out doing business calls. And we had this by the way, at this time, I was pretty damn ready to leave enterprise. Like I didn't know what I wanted to do. But I knew I needed to get the hell out of there because renting cars to crazy people and standing in a suit in 70 degree weather, showing up at seven, leaving at seven, six and a half days a week was hell. I hated it, but I was learning, but I hated it. And I'm in the office one day and I have about nine people in my lobby. I'm going to try not to have a, a mental breakdown here while I recall this situation, but I have about nine people in my lobby and these people range from people returning cars, those looking to get cars, those who have issues with their cars, people that don't have enough gas in their cars. And at the same time, I don't know if you've ever been into an enterprise rental car lobby, but it's a damn hellhole. You have phones ringing off the hook, like you're in a hotline for free concert tickets. You have people standing everywhere. The stress level is high. New employees don't know what they're doing. You know what you're doing, but you don't have enough hands to do it all. And so I'm standing there and this girl walks in. And she hands me the keys to her car and she says, I need to check in my vehicle. And I happen to be the only one to do it. And I was like, you know what? Just hold on five minutes. I'm going to have one of my employees take care of you and I'm going to handle the rest of this. So one of my employees comes up and he, he kind of looks at me and he's like, Hey, you know, like you got to, you need to come over here and get to talk to you. And I'm like, look, right now we got nine people in the lobby. What like, get it done, figure it out, solve the problem. Come on. He's like, no, no, you really got to come check this out. And at that point, I knew that whatever happened with this car was going to be worse than all the other things that were going on in the lobby. So I follow them outside. And in our little lot with way too many cars, I see a massive crease on the passenger door. And I look at the contract and they have full insurance. They have like the give, give the keys to the guy and the car is in flames and they get to walk away. That really good, full everything insurance. And I was like, cool, no problem. This is easy. I just write this off. I do a damage claim on it. And uh, the you know enterprise is gonna take care of all this because they have the coverage. And so I asked her, can you describe how it happened? Again, I'll paint the picture for you. There's like nine people in the lobby. The phones are going crazy. Employees are running around like chickens with their heads cut off. And I'm taking the the 
intake from this girl. She doesn't speak very well English. Neither do I, apparently. She doesn't speak English very well. And I'm asking her to describe what happened. She said she was driving back from San Francisco and she felt tired. So I'm thinking, why? Well, I hope the other person's okay if you fell asleep at the wheel and hit something. And she says, so I had my friend drive. And when I woke up, I noticed that and I don't know what happened. This creates quite an issue for us because in the state of California, if you have full insurance on a car like that, only you are insured. Meaning that if anyone else is going to drive the car, they have to be added on to the contract prior to the car leaving the lot, which in this case did not happen. So I immediately knew what was going to happen. This girl is now responsible entirely for the vehicle. And if she's not responsible for it, then I'm responsible for it. And any day, I'm not taking that responsibility, but specifically this day, I'm definitely not taking on that responsibility because I'm stressed out and there's all these people in the lobby waiting for cars that I don't have. So I start to basically explain to her what's going to happen. And she was so resistant, immediately starts crying. Like, I'm going to lose my passport. I'm going to lose my visa, blah, blah, you know, the whole laundry list. And as an empathetic human, I'm starting to feel bad because I could simply just write it off, right? I could just say, you know, I could click a different box. It says it was insured. I could do something different. But being a stickler for the rules that I am, I made this situation morally right, but a lot harder for myself than I needed to. And I just remember looking at her. And all of a sudden, my heart rate tripled, like instantly. It was up felt like 200 beats a minute and my palms were just full of water and i looked at her and i looked down and grabbed my wallet and i walked over to the garage and as i was walking an employee looked at me and i said something i don't remember what i said mumbled and then i punched a hole through the door and i collapsed to the ground dropped my keys my cell phone everything the area manager had to come to my branch. The branch manager had to come back from the business calls. The regional manager had to come down. I was crying, hysterical mess, full-blown panic attack. Never had one in my life, but it came on so strong and it just, I exploded. I couldn't remember everything that happened. I tried calling one of my parents, could barely even talk to them. I was a mess and uh, I was put on stress leave for two weeks to take off from work. And during that time, I just realized like, what the fuck, man? What am I doing here? I mean, I'm, I'm at a job that I don't like. Doing something that I don't love at the complete cost of my health and well-being for a paycheck and some health benefits. And it was at that moment that I realized absolutely not. This is not how my life is going to be. I'm fucking done. And I'm going to figure out something else to do. So I was on a trip with my dad and I was like, this is it. I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. I got to figure out something else to do. What can I do? And he said, what, what's important to you? And I was like, well, I, you know, I love athletics. I started to, to work out again and get back in my routine. And I was like, I love athletics. I like sports. I'd love to work with a sports team or something. And he goes, well, why don't you just be a personal trainer? And I remember we both looked at each other 
And I was like, how does one become said personal trainer? And he's like, I don't know, but I'm sure you can figure it out. So I did a little research, found out that getting a personal training certification is easier than getting a driver's license. And I started to study immediately. And I remember I was living with two friends in Venice at that time. I was studying constantly. Um, I was working at the Enterprise Rent-A-Car at the airport in Los Angeles doing graveyard shifts. So I would actually wake up in the morning. I would go and I'd work out at Gold's Gym. I'd walk home, take a little nap, and I'd go into work at 2, and I'd come back at 1 a.m. And it worked out perfectly because this weird, stupid graveyard work schedule made me nocturnal, which made me opposite of every other person in my social life, which gave me ample time to study for this test, of which I then passed. And then I was faced with a really weird situation where I was now allowed to do the thing that I thought I wanted to do so bad, but now I was freaked out because I had no fucking idea how to do that. I had never been a trainer before. I don't know how to train people. What if someone's diabetic? What if someone has high blood pressure? What if someone has an ACL tear? What if someone's back's blown? They got a herniated disc. What if someone doesn't like me? I mean, all the things started running through my head and I started to just stack all the reasons why I'm an idiot and I shouldn't be doing this. And I, I need to not be a trainer. I need to keep my head down and get promoted at this stupid enterprise job, keep making more money, doing things that I hate. And then one day when I've accumulated enough money from the hated career, I can go retire. Well, that sounded like shit too. So I looked around all the different places where I could work as a personal trainer with no experience. And that's how I came upon Equinox because I found out that they were you know, they have a heavy focus on continuing education and I won't turn this episode into a whole promo for Equinox, but in short, I have nothing but great things to say about them. It was because of their continuing education that I learned everything that I did about personal training, that I learned about the application of how to help people that come from different situations, different starting points, different skill levels, and different resistances to behavior change or lifestyle change. Um, the continuing education opportunities and the speakers and the people that I was exposed to there, along with mentors, other trainers, it was nothing but a positive experience. And I was at Equinox for about seven years. I remember I was taking interview calls in a suburban on the lot at the enterprise rent a car saying that I was in like my office as I'm considering a career change. Uh, as I was getting ready to leave this job to go to enterprise and work there in Santa Monica. And I actually, I did my phone interview. I got brought in for an actual interview. And then I was scheduled to do what's called a practical interview. A practical interview is where you go in, you have a hypothetical client, which will always be one of their trainers and a hypothetical situation. For example, this is Todd. Todd has a torn meniscus and he's overweight. He wants to lose 10 pounds. How do you do it? And you're supposed to come up with a training program for this person, take them through a quote workout while the fitness director and manager watch you to assess whether or not you have the baseline skills and communication necessary to be developed into a good trainer. And when I got the information, it said, you will be 
<laughs> coming in for your and Aaron, if you're listening, I think it's hilarious. Like my favorite story to tell, but it said, you will be doing your practical with Aaron Rybin. And I looked this guy up and I don't know if I found like just some old article or something, but this dude was like six, five, 200 pounds, NFL linebacker style athlete looking guy. And I was, you know, quitting an enterprise rent-a-car job to come in as a trainer. And I was like, man, I'm fucked. Like I, there's no way I go in here and train this dude. And they look at me and go, yeah, it looks like he knows what he's doing. And so I called and I said, you know what? Uh, I can't make the financial commitment right now. I had about $500 in my bank account and they were guaranteeing me 15 hours a week, 15 hours a week on minimum wage was the entry level starting pay at Equinox for understandable reason. I was like, absolutely not. One, I'm not going in to train Godzilla. And two, I don't have any money to do this. I don't even know if I'm going to be good at it. And the fitness manager at the time called me back within five minutes of receiving the email. He said, you're coming in, you're doing this interview. You're going to love it. We're going to train you. You're coachable. You have an athletic background. You're going to pick this stuff up. You just need a little bit more of the substance. And I was like, shit, okay, cool. I'll do it. So I came in, I do the assessment with this guy, Aaron, and I put him through to a T the suggested workout of the American council for exercise go to, this is what you should do with a deconditioned person, which obviously he wasn't, but I just aired way on the side of caution, had him doing like, you know, modified plank holds and, and like hamstring flexibility tests. Anyway, uh, I got hired there and Equinox was a great experience, you know, controlling your schedule, being able to earn an actually, you know, a lucrative income. I was able to build a, you know, a substantial client base there, be exposed to a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds with different limitations and, and proficiencies and just absorb everything that I could possibly absorb it when it comes to training. And thankfully I was able to help launch the tier X uh, department at Equinox Santa Monica, which is Equinox. They're like upper end training tier that they offer. It's a much more like 360 degree holistic approach to training. Whereas instead of just doing a quick hour intake and a postural assessment, you do resting metabolic rate, active metabolic rate, a 3d body scan. You do a whole coaching session and then a two hour review where you present all the data to the individual. I mean, being able to actually assess things like VO2 max and body composition from a three-dimensional view are really cool points. I think not only as a trainer to be able to provide your clients with that kind of information, but there is a side of it that it really does make you feel worth your value. Like you're able to play around with and present some very useful tools that they give people the opportunity to truly change their life and their habits for the better. And being able to launch that with Equinox at that location was really fun. It was a wild experience. Um, through that, I was actually, and this is like right before the pandemic. So this was a, a pretty wild series of events. I was asked to do something called Equinox Explore, which was a developing division of the company where they would take members and you could sign up to go on an experience. So the experience that I did was a surf trip in Costa Rica but they had on hikes in Morocco. Um, they were doing a road bike experience in Hudson River, New York. I mean, really cool stuff where 
it was all these worlds that I had wanted to come together were finally coming together where you could take a group of people, give them a, an experience goal off in the future, like a trip. And then what I did in the interim was for the members that were on the trip, I put together a surf specific training program so that these people from all their different clubs from New York and Texas and California, wherever they were, they were training on this program to get ready to go and do this experience. That was like all of my worlds coming together. I thought there was nothing cooler. It was so, and it turned out being on this trip in Costa Rica with these people was a life-changing experience for them and myself to be able to connect with these people who've been working towards something, despite also just having regular lives, regular jobs, things that they're doing. I mean, it was really special. And I felt like it was, it was my dream career. It was everything came together. It was training and travel and preparation and optimization, bam. And I went on that trip in February, 2020. I came back, we crushed the trip. The trip was a great experience. The staff that I was able to work with, Leah and Remy, you guys are awesome. It was great. And it basically just got greenlit for more experience. It was such positive feedback. So I was asked to come to New York to do an, a hotel retreat. So they were doing what's called like an urban retreat at the Equinox Hotel. And I was so excited. This was going to be in March. Yeah, in March. And then the pandemic hit. And what a crazy experience to be in a business where your entire income and your ability to affect your clients' well-being has historically been a 100% in-person, literally face-to-face, and I mean inside a six-feet face-to-face career. To go into work one day, have the pandemic information start to circulate, and then go in and literally not be allowed to, to go into the building. I mean, it was crazy. It was like, come in, grab your stuff. We're done. And overnight it, you know, it's no surprise. I mean, everyone else went through the pandemic too. It, it was just our experience personally as trainers was really wild. Um, and we tried to pivot as quick as we could and turn everything virtual, which I have actually become a massive fan of. I've been training clients virtually now for well, since the pandemic, I mean, it's largely what I do. I have way fewer in-person clients now than I do virtual. And I love it because these people can train anywhere in the world. You can be anywhere in a room with 10 by 10 of available space and a computer, and you can stay active and you can stay on track with your health. You can stay on track with your program. You can get creative and use other things for resistance, backpacks filled with books, whatever it is. Um, it's just a special medium that didn't exist before the pandemic. So it, it, in my eyes, it's one of the, the positive things for our industry to come out of the pandemic is a willingness to train via video and therefore a willingness to stay consistent where historically travel would have created an absence from your training. So the pandemic happened and, uh, that kind of is, you know, it's where we are now. Um, Lauren and I moved down to Encinitas last year. It was kind of a, a long time in the works. Like I think we knew we were going to end up down here, but we wanted to get going a little bit early because there was nothing you could do in LA. And now we're down here. And I will say starting a business outside of Equinox is a very scary thing. It was probably more nerve wracking on myself than it needed to be. 
But when you leave something that is so comfortable, even if you've wanted to leave it for so long, it, it becomes challenging to trust yourself and your worth monet And I do mean like monetarily the value of your business outside of the walls of the one that created it. And that was a tough thing for me to get used to. You know, when you take, for example, Equinox away, you're taking away a lot more than just the building, right? I mean, it's like people are paying for a lot more than just the the time that they are, they are training with you. And that was a hard thing for me to understand at the beginning. I just thought, un- unfortunately, you know, that everyone was just training with me, but there's other things that people are getting for the value of their membership, for example, and it goes well beyond parking. I mean, the social community that they're exposed to the amenities, showers, the steam room, the proximity to their job, sometimes just the breaking up of their day to physically go somewhere that's different from what they're doing. Uh, and I think that as you know, anyone, anyone who's listening, who's a trainer, I urge you to stay as confident as you can in your value and know that people are training with you because they do value you as an individual and what you've done to help them. And be confident in what you're willing to put forward as your services. And it'll pay you back 100%. But that took a little bit for me to understand, um, letting go of what I thought I was worth and kind of the weird psychological things around that, Um, which kind of leads me to one of my last points here, starting the business, the ski system. So I launched an online subscription service for training for the ski industry. And I've realized the value of creating free content for people. And that is something I thought that I was above for some reason in the past. Maybe it was because of the high price point of Equinox. And I think what, I, what I'm getting at here is my cat starting to bother me on the floor, <laughs> um, is that in your business, to create buzz and to create an audience and, and people around it listening to what you're doing and the products that you're putting out there, you must be willing to put stuff out for free and in abundance and not just free bullshit, not free photos of, of you doing workouts, which look guilty as charged. I mean, for a long time, I would, I would share and post dumb stuff in hindsight that adds no value to society in any way. Uh, But ask yourself, is this thing that I'm putting out, whether it's an article, a post, a video, a how-to, is it adding value to the community? Are people going to see this and feel like they've learned something that they didn't know before? And if the answer is no, make sure you have a really good reason for using it because it's not going to help your business grow or your brand grow if you're not helping people develop a further understanding of the thing that they're interested in. Because knowledge, especially from, I can speak only within this industry, it is not a dime a dozen. I mean, it is, it, it is harder to communicate value within the training industry than you would think. And I mean, real value, value that can, people can actually take and apply and see an outcome. So for those of you 
that are listening, that are doing things on your own, starting your own business, starting your own venture, whatever, make sure that you offer value for free, please. Um, I guess that pretty much concludes. Oh, I guess I'll talk a little bit about uh, the knee and the, the, the irony here. So I've been training for about eight weeks, really trying to lock in my training to help myself prepare for this jujitsu tournament that happened on Saturday. And I've been working with a good friend of mine and awesome coach, Josh Clay on really building like tendon and ligament strength and reactive strength, not only for this tournament, for, for the upcoming ski season, just because you can't prevent injury, but you can reduce the risk of it. And that's been a big part of what we've been after in this program is making sure that the joints and tendons and ligament or the tendons and ligaments around the knee joint are strong and durable. So that when there's changes in direction, abrupt stops, whatever on snow or in competition, that the body is able to resist those and react. And on Saturday, I put myself in a really dumb position. You can see the video on my page on Instagram. Uh, and I torqued my own knee and that plus the applied pressure on my opponent popped my knee louder than I've ever heard anything pop. Uh, my, my opponent said it sounded like a gunshot went off behind his ear. So popped immediately. I skirted away. I, I thought for sure that my knee had been torn into like multiple pieces. It just did not feel right. I've never felt anything like that, but then it surprisingly didn't feel that bad. It felt like I could put weight on it. I could stand on one leg. I could flex. I could extend. I couldn't really rotate, but that makes sense. <laughs> um, and that now I'm, you know, scheduled to get an MRI, but I want to say that the reason that I'm standing on one leg and the reason I'm walking around, I'm able to, to check on things and see how it feels is because of the training. There's no way that it, had I not been trained, I only been doing jujitsu that my body would have held up to that, that instance. I mean, it was an insane amount of torque and to be able to walk away from that is absolutely a testament to the training. So just a, a little bit on the importance of making sure that you have structure in your training and you have purpose behind what you're doing, because that will set your body up for success and it will help you reduce the risk of injury in anything that you do, whether it's falling down while you're hiking, sumo, get out of here, <laughs> falling down while you're hiking, any kind of overuse injuries from running, et cetera, setting your body up for success, making it durable will only help you in the long run. And that brings me to the final closing bit here. Um, for those of you that have listened to me ramble to this point, I hope that you found it entertaining. I hope that there was some value here. Uh, as I start to continue to get the calendar ready here and have guests on the show, I really want to cover... Geez, sumo. Sorry. I really want to cover a broad spectrum of guests. I'd like to have guests on from many different backgrounds opposing viewpoints, different industries. It's important to me to cover a lot of different ground here because a lot of different people interest me. I think that there's so much that we can learn from each other if we're willing to listen. And my aim here is to cover that ground. So I've begun to schedule out guests for the next couple months here. I'm aiming to do about four episodes a week or sorry, four episodes a month. And I'll additionally be airing episodes to the ski system sub-series. So those are going to be winter sports specific athletes and people 
within that industry, whether that's small town business, new emerging brands within the winter industry. And all of those will air under this main idea podcast, but as a sub-series for the ski system. So thank you guys all for listening so much. Again, if any of you feel inclined to leave a comment, a review, a rating, all of that stuff is going to help this podcast grow. And I thank you so much.